If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 7. And if you don't have it, uh, your Bible, it's behind me on the screen. At least it should be. Yep, there it is. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is that is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May God bless the reading of his word. So last week we we heard the crux of the gospel as um, many people, I guess it was actually Spurgeon who really decided to call it that, which was that Christ is our advocate. He, by his blood, our wounds are healed. It is by him that we have the propitiation, the expiation for our sins. Um, And now we kind of wonder, okay, what's the application to that? What's the application of God now loving us? What is it that we do in response to this love of God? And that's what we're kind of left with, and this is where we come to. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John continues his letter by addressing his readers directly. We notice he calls them beloved. Some translations may say brothers, and this is due to some later manuscripts um, changing the Greek word agabatoi with adelphoi. Um, This latter word, adelphoi, would correctly be translated as brother, but the older manuscripts we have of the text confirm that originally it was agabatoi. And so most modern translations go by this in their translation. Now concerning agabatoi, Agapetoi. Keep on saying that wrong. Some translations also will translate it, um, my dear friends or friends. But the truth is, this word doesn't quite fit friendship either. If John wanted to express this, he would have used the proper word for friends at the time, which would be philos, which we know Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, phila, um, philos. Instead, he uses, again, agapetoi, which, as we notice, the root is agape meaning the love of God. So the better translation does seem to be beloved, as the ESV does it here, and with that we see that these individuals are beloved because they are loved by God. John continues by insisting that he is not writing to this group, this beloved, a new commandment, but an old commandment. John's point in this is to get them to understand that he is not writing to them a new set of doctrines to follow. This is not some novel commandment that um, must be seen. He's not just making it up as he writes to them. Instead, this commandment is one that they have heard at least since their salvation. This commandment is love. If this is the commandment which is being spoken of, then it is technically even older than their conversion. The commandment to love was not only instructed by Christ... We find it in rabbinical teachings before Christ. Consider this story from the Babylonian Talmud. On another occasion it happened that a certain heathen came before Shammai and said to him, Make me a proselyte, on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Could you imagine that being told the law 
while you're standing on one foot. That's the challenge. Um, thereupon, he repulsed him with the builder's cubit, which was in his hand. <laughs> so he threw a rock at him. <laughs> so the prophet said, when he went before Hillel, he said to him, what is hateful to you? Do not, oh, wait, no. He went before Hillel. He said to him, what is hateful, what is hateful to you? Do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. While the rest is the commentary thereof. Go and learn it. Now Hillel basically said, okay, you can stand on one foot. This is the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them. Or do not do what you would have them do to you. Now Hillel lived from 110 BC to 10 AD. Passing away approximately a decade after Christ. Um, Something else to notice is that though this is similar to what Jesus taught, it is negative. He says, don't do, while Jesus said, you shall do, love your neighbor, do do unto them as you would have them do to you. Now, with that, we also find in the Mosaic Law, which goes obviously further than Hillel, um, Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Likewise, in Deuteronomy, still again older, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Finally, it can go back even further than the Mosaic Law, this, this law of love, when we consider God in all eternity, dwelling as the Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in love. It is part of his very character, and therefore represents just how old this commandment is. It is an old old commandment to love. So when we take this into account, it is old in this sense. They have heard this commandment many times in their lives, and some likely before their conversion, and it's because it is ingrained in us in some way. Now, verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. Let me just turn my page. Now, this should give us a pause. Didn't John just tell us that this is an old commandment? Why is he now saying that it's a new commandment? Is it one or the other? While it is true that John has focused on dichotomies of either or, so either in light or in darkness, not both, in this case, the commandment in which he's speaking of is both an end. It is both new and old. We notice that the commandment is true in him and in you. This represents the love of God which is being perfected in them if they are in Christ, as we saw in verses 4-5 through previously. For John to find it necessary to remind them of this might reflect our natural tendencies to forget the old commandments, or at least to remember them without following them. Oftentimes, we need to be retaught old lessons because of our forgetful tendencies. Likewise, it is old and new in that Christ took an old commandment that we saw, and he made it new in his own teachings. In some ways, this makes the old new commandment make sense. However, it is more than this. It is not only old because of its history and new because of the necessity of repetition and because Christ used it. It also reflects a new understanding, which is eschatological, end times, that this commandment ties into the darkness passing away and true light, which is already shining. Darkness in John represents sin or the spatial element of sin in the world, the gloom of sin, 
which surrounds it. Meanwhile, the light represents Jesus. Since his coming, the darkness is being dispersed, and the light is being shown to the world. Therefore, the commandment which this ties to represents this great truth. Because Christ has come, his light outshines the darkness, and we are able to love God and each other in a new way, following the old commandment as though if it were a new commandment in Christ. Now verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It is in this verse we find the first reason for the interpretation that the commandment is to love. John recognizes that it is impossible to be in the light while hating his brother. We come back to the dichotomies of if-then. If one says that they are in the light, yet acts in a way of hatred toward their brother, then he is still in darkness. As we have seen throughout John, to be in the light represents being in God and further in Christ. If one claims to be in Christ, claims to be a Christian, then one cannot also hate their brother. Brother here represents the brotherhood and sisterhood of those who are in Christ. One who hates a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. It can be biological in that even our biological siblings can be in Christ. Yet the focus here is on the familial relationship between us as believers. Likewise, hatred here does not necessarily mean what we think it does of wanting to, let's say, murder or just um, hurt physically. Consider how Jesus describes hate in Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. We notice hatred has many different aspects to it. When we exclude our brothers and sisters, and when we revile or spurn their names as evil, these are all representations of hatred. So one who acts this way toward a brother or sister of the faith while claiming to be in the faith is actually still in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John now begins a further dichotomy between those who follow the commandments to love and those who do not. He begins with those who do follow the commandment and loves his brother. Such an individual abides in the light. In other words, these individuals are not liars. If they claim to be in Christ and live in love, then this lifestyle of love is evidence of them being in the light. He continues by informing us that for such an individual, there is no cause for stumbling. What we want to ask is, what does stumbling mean? Does it mean stumbling into sin? Does it mean stumbling in regards to hurting another's feelings? Most would concur that it relates in two ways. The first is that the one who loves their brother does not stumble themselves. They don't hate their brother and therefore show that they're not in the light. The second is that the one who loves their brother does not cause their brother to stumble into sin. In either case, the focus is that the one who, who, loves, who, ab- who loves abides in light, which is in God, and does not cause stumbling for themselves or for others. Now verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
John now further reflects on what was said previously and presents the second half of the dichotomy with walking in darkness. The first clause is a restatement we have heard in verse 9. If one who claims to be a follower of Christ hates his brother, he remains in darkness rather than the light. John clarifies this further by saying that he walks in darkness. As has been seen previously, to walk in the light or to walk in darkness represents a lifestyle. A lifestyle is the overall choices you make in life. Um, To walk in darkness, then, is not a brief stay. It is a life where the evidence through action shows that one is in darkness. Their lives reflect darkness of sin through a lack of love. And as a quick example, Bets, before you continue, um, and I'm not pointing you out, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Bets. It's like if you were to take a video of someone's life, you'd be able to see the evidence of their life through the video. However, if you took a picture... That wouldn't really be an accurate way of describing someone's life. You would have to see the whole thing. So for those who are walking in this way, it's showing a video of their lives and it's all in darkness. Rather than just one moment when they, when they struggle. So, what's more, the individual is unaware where he is going, as John says. Why is this? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To not know where one is going recognizes that the individual does not grasp the truth. They think that they are going in one direction. That is, they think they are in the right. They think that they're in the light when they are in the wrong and they're in darkness. They are blind to their own lives and to Christ. It reflects the same kind of blindness the religious authorities had when they confronted Jesus. Their issue was that they thought that they were in the right. They thought that they were in the truth when they were really far from it. So the main point of this passage of scripture is to cause us to recollect on the commandment of Jesus, which is to love. We are to love the Lord and we are to love each other. In the Gospel of John, Jesus informed his disciples that the world would know that they were his by the love of that they had for each other. The same is the case with these believers here and with us. To love as a lifestyle is to portray the evidence of the salvation which comes through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. A lack of love, then, is evidence that one has not grasped the light but continues to remain in the darkness. So, I suppose that this is a question we should ask. Why is love so pivotal for the Christian faith? Another way of looking at it is, why is love so foundational for the Christian life? And what should that love foundation be, or what should it look like? If we can answer this question, then one would imagine that the difficulties of love would greatly diminish. What I mean is, having the right reason for loving will allow us a greater love for one another. Let's consider a few foundations which are generally insufficient. Consider when we love our spouses. Most, or at least some people, love their spouses because their spouses make them feel good. This is, the tr- this is true of those inside and outside of the church. Um, so let's say, I love my spouse because they do this for me, or they do that for me, and that's the reason why I love them. The question that arises is, what happens 
when those good feelings go away? What happens when your spouse fails you? In a Christian context, what occurs when your spouse sins against you and hurts you? Is that just cause then for you to stop loving them? The same application can be used in friendships as well. We can love our friends because our friends provide some kind of camaraderie or they provide something to us. But what happens when your friend fails you? Do you stop loving your friend because of your friend's failure? How many friendships have been ruined because of a failure on one part or another? How many marriages have fallen apart? How many relationships have been broken and fallen apart because of pride or because we want to stop loving someone because they've done something to us? Simply put, we need another foundation for our love. Otherwise, our love is going to run out. Um, For most, it is easy to have love for the unrepentant, for example, until that unrepentant sinner remains unrepentant and continues to reject the gospel. What's going to keep you presenting the gospel despite the sorrow of their rejection? What's going to cause you to get back on your feet? Again, the foundation for our love is significant. It will allow us to get back up. It will allow broken relationships to be mended. It will grant forgiveness and grace. Yet, If we begin with man as the foundation for our love, then our love will never be sufficient. People fail. We fail. It will allow brokenness to slip through the cracks. So what is our foundation for love? The answer is that it is God himself. As we saw previously, love is a primary attribute of the Godhead through the Trinity. The Trinity always existed in love toward one another. So we, first, so we first see this as a prime example of why we should love, because God himself has love and is love. Likewise, our foundation also rests on God loving us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in darkness, God sent his Son to the cross for us. Instead of sending us into judgment for our sins, God made a way for salvation to come. His love for us, despite all of our sins and all of our faults, should cause us to love one another as well. That is the foundation for love. It is God himself. His love overflows onto all of our relationships. All too often we think that our relationship with God doesn't affect our relationships with our friends, family, or others. The truth is, this relationship is the relationship by which all of our other relationships should be geared toward. Our relationship with God should be the relationship by which we define the rest of our relationships. So, when your husband or wife sins against you, why do you continue to love them? Because God is love. And he loved you despite all of your sins against him. Your friends sin against you. Why do you love them? Because God is love. And he loved you despite all the sins you've committed against him. And this can keep on going for whoever you want to insert. Whether it be child, family, anyone. So be a people of love. And remember where it is our relationships rest. 
Have the right foundation for your friend relationships. Don't place your relationships on the foundation of sinking sand, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. Live in love for one another, knowing that the love of God has that the love that the love that God has for you through Christ is full and fills up all of your cup until it overflows. Now, another thing that we think of in this application is confession. We should reflect on the reality that these individuals who claim to be in the light are people who are confessing to be Christians. That is to say, they willingly confess Jesus as Lord. Yet, what do we notice? Confession in Christ is not saving them from wandering and living in darkness nor is it saving them from their blindness. So what can we gather from this? We can gather that confession itself is not an adequate way for us to know whether one is in the light. For a long time, we as Christians have held this understanding that if we can get someone to just admit that Jesus is Lord, then they will be saved. For a long time, we've placed a false belief that someone repeating a prayer will cause salvation to definitely come upon them. Because of this, we have a generation, at least, probably two or three, of individuals who have prayed a prayer and now believe that they are eternally secured in their salvation. Have they ever been to church? No. Do they read their Bibles? No. Do they seek God in prayer? No. Do they desire fellowship with God? No. Do they believe that they are in the light while they continue They believe that they are in the light while they continue to walk in darkness, and it is because we have failed to preach the gospel entirely or correctly. It is true that confession and belief are pivotal for the Christian. This is not a knock on these things. However, we need to recognize that it is not enough to declare someone a Christian by confession alone. Jesus himself argues against this very thing in Matthew 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We notice, what we notice here is, um, the parallelism of the statement, Lord, Lord. This individual knows Jesus. They know who he is. If he were walking down the street, they could point him out. They recognize him and even call him Lord. Yet what does Jesus say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does this mean? Knowing Jesus is very important, but we also must be known by Jesus. And we are known by Jesus not only through confessing him as Lord, as these individuals do, but by walking in his spirit, walking as Jesus walked in love. Would it surprise any of us in the least if we went out of here today into Westfield, knocked on every door, encouraging all these people to seek Jesus just to be told, I've done did that. Would you be surprised? Would it surprise anyone if a statistic came out informing us that everyone in Tioga County believed in God? Would these things really surprise any of us? 
Yet we wonder why half the churches are empty. Is it possible this happens because when those individuals were told to confess, they were rarely told in the same breath to repent, to turn away from sin, turn away from the destruction, to not only have faith and confess Jesus as Lord, but to live with him as Lord in all things in life. Jesus will not be fooled by false sheep. When his kingdom comes, he will not be fooled by those who claim to his name, yet live in a way which is contrary to his light. Jesus will not be fooled by any of us or any of those outside of the church. So we need to seek the scriptures. We need to seek the light of Christ and walk in the same way he walked in love. Not as a way of gaining salvation, but recognizing that if we are saved, then we will walk in a way which he walked. It does not mean that to be saved we have to work at it. We're not legalists. It merely recognizes that true salvation will bring about good fruit. That confession isn't enough. We need to have our hearts transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. As a quick side note, I know that some may be wondering, all right, what can we do then for these individuals who are in such a state? Won't they just reject the gospel message you present to them because they believe that they're already saved? Isn't this a little too discouraging for us all here on Sunday morning? And to all these things, I would say, have hope. Consider Paul before his conversion. If there was an individual who believed that they were in the light, yet still in darkness, more than Paul, I haven't found them yet. At least Paul was seeking to glorify God, albeit in the wrong place. Guess what? Paul, despite his inaccuracies, was converted by the power of God Almighty. He was given salvation by the power of God. If God can change his heart, which assumed wrongly that it was in the light, and if God can bring Paul, who was so righteous in himself, and turn him around from darkness to light, then I think God can do it for anyone we may encounter who may say to us, I've done did that. Our hope is not in these individuals that they can snap themselves out of it. They can't. Our hope rests in the power of God through his gospel, which can. So be faithful to the gospel. Remember to have hope for these individuals who are in darkness, yet they think that they're in the light. God can transform any heart, even the ones that think that they are not in need of transformation. He can bring true confession and true repentance. So proclaim the gospel. And trust in God to do as he declared he would do, which is turn hearts from darkness and into light. Now this leads us to our third point. What is love? Whenever we talk about love, we have to be careful. Unfortunately, there are many who misinterpret these texts to give love a definition which is altogether different from the definition laid out by Scripture. We see this... When individuals, instead of calling out sin or wrongdoing, turn a blind eye and allow sin and wrongdoing to continue, all in the name of love. And I'll give an example. Homosexuality is a good example of this. Many congregations these days are turning a 180 on the historic Christian teaching that homosexuality is a sin. Many have argued that it is not loving to reject individuals who practice a homosexual lifestyle. 
That if we do this, the world will think that we are mean and unkind and the opposite of loving. So instead, we should change the doctrinal view the church has had for 2,000 years and embrace homosexuality rather than reject it as sin. Notice, the whole purpose of this is in the name of love. The problem with this is that they are assuming that love is synonymous with acceptance. That is, when we accept certain individuals, that is when we love them. The problem with that is that acceptance is not synonymous with love according to the scriptures. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter we all know. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. We like these things so far. It does not insist in its own way. Some might not like that. It is not irritable or resentful. Now verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice what he says in verse 6. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. To rejoice and accept a wrongdoing as good would be a lie. It would be a lie to accept murder as a righteous act. It would be a lie to accept adultery as a righteous act, etc. We could keep on going down the list. Instead, it would be right for us to rejoice in the truth by acknowledging that wrongdoing exists. Wrongdoing is when we fall into sin. And when we fall into sin, when we walk in darkness, we should rejoice when sin is brought into the open and repented of. Rather than rejoice when sin is brought into the open and called good. It doesn't matter what sin it is. It doesn't matter if it's homosexuality, lying, anything. We should never rejoice in it when it comes out. It is almost strange to consider love being used to justify evil. It is strange to consider love, of all things, being used to justify brokenness. Yet we see it happen all the time because individuals are throwing words around without properly defining them. Since love is no longer defined, people can use love however they wish. Meanwhile, it keeps getting obliterated. And texts like this today that we read about love keep getting abused. So what do we say in response? We are to love truly. We are to love our brothers and sisters, and we are to love those outside of the church. Our love must be defined by patience, kindness, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant or rude. It must not insist in its own way. It must not be irritable or resentful. It must bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. However, true love will also not encourage an individual to remain in their sin. Rather, it will encourage them to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. It will be willing to speak things that will make people feel sad for the sake that they would find redemption in Jesus. Sometimes the truth of the Christian faith is not easy to hear. It is not easy to hear that we are all sinners. It is not easy to hear that we are all deserving of righteous judgment. It isn't easy to say these things either, because individuals are more likely to reject the gospel than to accept it. 
Yet even though it is hard, we still must be faithful to the gospel and proclaim it. It is then that we are loving these individuals truly by proclaiming the gospel, being all the things to find above, that we are loving individuals truly. My encouragement to you is to not be an individual who falls prey to any definition of love that comes along. Don't let mere sentiment rule the day. Instead, let the scriptures give you a strong foundation in God, and let God define the foundation according to his word. Don't let the culture dictate definitions. Instead, be willing to stand up in true love for the truth. This love does not allow a lifestyle free-for-all. Instead, it rejoices with the truth. And the truth is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God Most High, and He saves us from our sins. Let the truth set you free, and proclaim this truth in love to others, so that they may experience the freedom found within the gospel of Jesus Christ. Naturally, this leads us to that gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it when we recognize we can walk in light rather than darkness. We see it when we can distinguish the two from one another. We see it when our lifestyles are able to glorify God Most High because we can love. It is because of the gospel that these things are possible. And the gospel begins with our origins. God created all the cosmos by the power of his word. Yet last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. And it's because God is a God of love, of reason, that he knows, can be known, has personhood, has morality, shows Hesed, we can as well. And it's here that we find the sanctity, the dignity, and worth to human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either follow God in obedience in life, or follow sin into disobedience and death. Unfortunately, humanity chose the latter, and we continue to make that choice. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. And it's because of our sin that we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And it's not just a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. God could have left us in this state of darkness forever, but instead, he sent the gospel. He sent his light. He sent his word into the darkness, and that is Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God. He lived and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. He also died. But he also rose again. By his blood, we are cleansed for our sins. By his sacrifice, we have propitiation. So we are no longer under the wrath of God. And by him, we are made righteous before our God. Our relationships are slowly being restored. And through his victory in life over death, we can have victory in life and over death. And all that's required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God in love. We are to live a lifestyle of bearing good fruit according to the word of God. We are to walk in step with the Spirit, walking as Jesus walked in love. We are to turn our love from our sins and toward God and each other. Likewise, we are to have faith in Christ. We are to recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. 
We must recognize our inability to attain the glory of God by our deeds. And that it is not that what we do that's important, but the fact that Jesus has come and it's what he's done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If we remain in disobedience, we will only experience condemnation. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand, for only Christ is completely righteous, while even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags. None can stand before God apart from the advocacy of Jesus Christ, as John taught us. Because of this, any who go before God apart from Christ go to their judgment. Yet, if we are obedient in these things, we find no condemnation. Instead, we find the love of God reserved only for His Son, Jesus Christ. We find victory over sin in this life. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will experience the peace of God forevermore. My encouragement to you is to walk as Christ walked. To cling to the propitiation, the expiation found in Christ. To walk in love. And to know that we can walk in love. And we can distinguish the darkness from the light. Stand firm against that darkness. Find peace in Christ. Walk in repentance and faith and love for the glory of God. And we can be assured that we're in the light because of the way we walk in Him. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come as our light. And Lord, even though we have been surrounded by darkness for so long, as soon as that light comes, it overshadows all darkness so that there is no darkness, there is no shadow in you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy and for your great love that though we are undeserving, you still save us from our sins. So give us strength to love each other. Give us strength to love our brothers and sisters of the faith so that we may glorify you. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.
As we go out into the world, we're going to face darkness. We're going to face things that are not loving. We're going to face definitions of love that are wrong and incorrect. Well, the way that we can spread the glory of God is by defining them correctly through our lives. So go out in love, the true love, found in Christ Jesus, and spread the light of Christ. Amen. God bless.